Amen. This morning we are turning to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 2, we're reading verses 18 to 26. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have any or can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity, and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the gift of your divinely inspired word. And as we just sang a moment ago, we pray that you would, that you would take these truths and plant them deep into our hearts that you would use this word to fashion us and shape us in the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For many years now, there's been a growing trend of people leaving or or trying to leave the confines of the cubicle and the limitations of the nine to five for more freedom. Many people will sort of give themselves to side hustles, developing passive incomes, arbitrage, investing, all in an effort to have more freedom in their life, not have to work so hard for so many years of their life. And I think a particular one catalyst to this growing trend was from a book from 2007, but it has become increasingly popular once again over the past several years. Maybe you've heard of it, but it's Tim Ferriss' book, The 4-Hour Workweek. It became an incredibly popular book. Four years, it's spent on the New York Times bestseller list. It was translated, has been translated into 40 different languages and has sold over 2.1 million copies. In his book, he essentially repudiates the, the slave save, retire plan, which is 
work for as many years as possible, work hard, work diligently in order to save all that you can so that one day later on in life you can retire. His book instead sort of promotes a sort of mobile lifestyle. And he provides wonderful and, I mean, uh, wonderful is not the word I use to describe it, but practical and helpful and tangible steps on how to essentially live like the new rich, which isn't essentially defined by wealth, but defined more about the freedom that you have to be able to work from anywhere and do whatever you desire. One particular statement in the book, it says, I'm going to assume you, the reader, are suffering from a tolerable and comfortable existence doing something unfulfilling. And he says that this is common and most insidious. Essentially, with this growing trend of people who are trying to escape, I guess, the limitations of work, the nine to five, the cubicle, is sort of the pursuit of the good life. People have a definition of what their good life is, and their definition of the good life is not working nine to five, five days a week. It's a pursuit of the good life, but then we see that there's nothing new under the sun. Right, this is exactly what the teacher many years ago was after. What is the good life? What does it look like? How do you define the good life? What is fulfilling? What is satisfying? The teacher, however, helps us to see the problem a little bit differently and answers the problem differently than this popular book. Where the solution, according to this book, is escape the nine to five to do essentially what you really want to do and work from anywhere in the world. And that is where you find fulfillment and that's where you find the good life. And the teacher, right, been following along with us in the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, essentially says, I've already done that. Way ahead of you there. In fact, I had it better than you possibly ever could than any of us, than anybody in the world ever possibly could. And I'm here to present you with my conclusion, and that is, I have nothing to offer you. But he does offer a solution. But first, in this particular section, we're talking about working and labor. Right, it seems to be a particular, a specific theme in this section. And so we begin with what we see, I think, in this passage is this working not unto prosperity, but working unto poverty. Again, in verse 20, the teacher, the wise man, says, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who was told with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. We saw a few weeks ago in chapter 2 
that teaches pursuit of the good life, essentially a, a hedonistic life, the pursuit of pleasure, withholding nothing from his heart. He says what he did with that kind of life. He made great works. He built houses. He planted vineyards. He made himself gardens and parks. He planted all kinds of fruit trees. He made pools to water his forest of growing trees. He bought male and female slaves. He had great possessions. He gathered silver and gold and treasure. He got singers, both men and women and concubines. He had everything and withheld nothing from his heart. And then we saw that he sort of then considers everything that he had accomplished, everything that he had done. He says that it was all vanity, striving after the wind, empty-handed, nothing. And if you remember, when we took a look at those specific passages in, in Ecclesiastes 2, we also then contrasted it to God's works because Solomon seemed to have been working in the same way or producing the same things that God himself was producing in the very beginning. So we took a, a look at God's works in the very beginning and everything that he had built, everything that he created, everything that he had made, and he had a very different reaction, right? He turned and looked and he considered and he says, it was all very good. The teacher, on the other hand, does this about-face, looks at everything. He does more than just say this isn't good, but he even gives himself over to despair. Statistics show that a third of the average person's life is spent working. Back in 2019, according to a study, when asked about satisfaction in the workplace, 46% of Americans said that they are largely dissatisfied. Right? It is no wonder then that you have this growing trend of people are trying to find the good life and to find the good life as, well, let's escape from work because surely I'm not finding it here. Let me find it out elsewhere. There's nothing new under the sun. There's the pursuit of this, what's become known as the new rich, which is not defined, as I said earlier, by wealth and how much money you have, but it's actually this defined by lifestyle. It's defined by experiences over assets. People essentially are after the same thing. But work itself isn't a bad thing. Now, certainly there are bad jobs, there are bad managers, there are bad employees. But work itself, the, the idea of work, isn't a bad thing. It's not an evil thing. It's not a sinful thing. Well, if we look, remember back in the very beginning, the book of Genesis, God created everything. Heavens, earth, everything on the earth. He created man in his image, and then he created him to work. He put him in the garden to work, the work is not a consequence of sin because work came before sin. Work originally was intended to be a good thing, not a means of satisfaction and fulfillment, but a good thing nonetheless. But then we have the fall. We have sin. Man transgressing the command of God, disobeying God, sinning against God, and then we have the terrible consequences of that action. 
And if you're familiar with the fall and the telling of the story in Genesis, you know what happens. That God curses the ground. Essentially, God gives man over to working the ground tirelessly through the sweat of his brow, given to vexation, to stress, essentially saying that the ground itself will bear thorns and thistles, no matter how hard, and you know this from experience, that no matter how hard you work, those thorns come up. No matter how hard you work, those weeds will come up, intending to choke the produce that you're trying to produce. That those thorns come up through terrible management, disgruntled employees, that all the work that you put in, it comes with a great deal of effort. And on top of these consequences, I would also think that a consequence of the fall is this sense of meaninglessness and satisfaction that comes, that we sometimes, or perhaps even oftentimes, struggle with in the workplace. So we spend a third of our lives working and giving the consequences of the fall and how they still play out even to this day. It is no wonder that our lives can be so filled with sorrow and vexation and distress. Again, you know this from experience. If, I mean, I'm sure all of you who have worked for any kind of significant amount of time, have been kept up at night and had sleepless nights because of work, or because you had to work, or because you were thinking about work, or something stressful about work. Now, work isn't necessarily defined by the nine to five, but I think work can be defined much broader than that. Work essentially is anything that requires mental or physical effort in order to produce something. So work can anything can be anything from producing, trying to produce a work of art. Working can be trying to produce an income, of course, to produce knowledge and perhaps a degree in college, to produce a crop. So taken in that sense, right, we can we work more than we think. So we broaden our definition of work. We see that our lives certainly can be full of sorrow and vexation. And it's not saying that it's, that's characteristic of your life or that your life is all about that. And no, sadly, that is the case for many people. Rather, it means that your life and my life consists of these many moments during our brief period on this earth where there is vexation, and stress. And it's in large part because a third of our lives is spent working the ground that God has cursed because of man's sin. I think that what the teacher is getting at is that the years that we spend working and all the stress and all the anxiety and everything that we have to endure in the workplace that we should expect perhaps more fulfillment, more satisfaction, or perhaps even more stuff. We spend so many years of our lives working and working 
at the end of the day, I mean, does it, does it all equal out? Does it really show that, that does what we produce really show the years of hard labor that we have given ourselves to? Because right, certainly if you work hard at something, if you work for many years of your life, then you are deserving of your wages. But sometimes you don't get exactly what you deserve or what you have earned or what you have worked for. And for some people, it's even worse, getting little to nothing. And on top of that, no sense of fulfillment, no sense of satisfaction, no meaning, no sense of purpose. If that wasn't awful enough, the teacher says that the life of work is actually much worse than you think. In verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the men who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I told and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled or worked with wisdom and knowledge and skill must, he must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. So it's not just bad that you spend most of your life working. It's even worse that you have to eventually give everything that you have worked for someone else. Now, we might think it's not so bad, right? This is why we have a will, so that we can transfer what our hard hands have produced to our loved ones. Now, if you know anything about Solomon and the teacher, you know that this actually ended up terribly because the one who came after him was actually terrible. But at the end of the day, everyone, without exception, must leave everything behind to be enjoyed by someone else. And there's two problems to this that leads the teacher to despair. The first is the benefactor, the mysterious benefactor. And the problem is that this benefactor is undeserving. No matter who owns it, no matter who inherits whatever your, works, whatever your hands have produced, whether it's a complete stranger for whatever reason or whether it's somebody you care about or somebody you love, the point is that the person who is inheriting everything that you have worked for didn't have to work nearly as hard as you did to get that stuff, whatever it is that you're leaving behind. Again, it's not such a bad thing if you're intending to leave those things to your loved ones because we want to love those that we leave behind. And even the proverb says, this is wise. But the point is, is that we can take nothing with us and somebody who hasn't worked as hard as we did for decades gets to sort of take it all without their working so hard for it. The second problem that leads to his despair and the much more substantial problem that the teacher is trying to get us to see is that 
You and I can work, for decades we can work so hard to try to produce something, to try to get whatever it is that we might need or even desire. And at the end of the day, we don't get to enjoy them for as long as we might like. Or if you consider everything that the teacher had built and put together back in chapter 2, certainly the man struggled with wanting to enjoy these things, even though he saw it as not fulfilling. Nevertheless, there is something about us that wants to enjoy the fruits of our labor. And the tragedy is that nobody gets to enjoy the work, their hard work, or the fruits of their hard work for very long. You might remember the story Jesus tells in the Gospels, the man who had great wealth and store, he, he, he put together, he built a great barn house to, put, to store all of, his, all of his wealth, and he took and he relaxed. He says, you have done well for yourself. Relax. Enjoy everything that you have put together. Enjoy all of your wealth. And Jesus says, you are a fool. You do not realize that tonight your soul will be required of you considers it a fool because he spent his life, he made his life about amassing all of these things, gathering all of these things. And in a moment, his life is taken away. Right, and this is, this is the reason why he despairs. Because one can work all the years of their life and try to produce all these things, get whatever they, their hearts des- desire perhaps, not realizing that their soul could be taken up by the Lord in an instant and never have that, the longevity to enjoy all the fruit of their labor. The teacher not only says that this is a vanity, but he even goes far as to say that this is a great evil. In a way, he's crying out, this is unfair. This is unjust. This isn't right that I can spend my years working and working and try to get all these things and to not be able to enjoy it for as long as I wish. So what happens is that it ends up being sort of this anticlimactic end. And so in this sense, the teacher would say, "This this is evil, this is unjust. To spend a third of our lives even more than that, and in the end, end up with nothing. And the Bible reminds us of this repeatedly. 1 Timothy 6, 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Psalm 49, verses 16 to 20, it's just, it's just plain awful. It says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he, re- he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp or his pride, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Everyone who makes it their life's goal to chase after the illusions of satisfaction and who gives their life to the pursuit of the good life here in this world are ultimately writing the anticlimactic end to their own story. Now thus far, 
from chapter 1 to here in chapter 2, Ecclesiastes, for the most part, has been a pretty godless book. Hence why it's pretty depressing. But then we come to this wonderful, and thankfully we come to this, this transition in the passage where there's now a consideration, more than a consideration, there's an acceptance of a God-entranced vision when it comes to the pursuit of the good life. So rather, so as we first saw that ultimately, that the man who pursues the good life in this world is ultimately working not unto prosperity, but unto poverty. But then we see this wonderful transition at the end of this section that really shows us a working unto prosperity. Right? That's the kind of life that we want to give ourselves to. We're going to spend our lives working. We want to work unto prosperity. Verse 24, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So we saw that the person, the secular person, the person who is, does not know God and forgives his life to the pursuit of the good life, writes the anticlimactic end to the own story, but they're not the only author. We also see here that God is another author to that story. It tells us that God gives the sinner to the, to the business of gathering and collecting. And doesn't specify what this gathering and collecting is of. I think that's intentional. It's, it's intended to be ambiguous, to be broad, that it could be of anything. It could be anything from gathering, collecting, wealth, status, honor, a name for yourself, friends, acquaintances, anything and everything. That God gives the sinner to gathering and collecting. And then we see another consequence of the fall, another consequence of sin, that God gives man over to spending a third of his life gathering and collecting in order to then have it all taken away and even have of his things given to someone else. And the Scripture just states it plainly. This is stating to us a reality, that this is what God actually does. It doesn't tell us how that happens. It doesn't tell us when that happens, but it just tells us that this is the case, that we don't know how. So it could be, and you and I may never know, that the things that you have had over your life, the things that you may have now, God most likely had a direct hand. Well, if God is the great provider of all things, God gave you whatever that it is you have right now, and he may have actually used his hand to take from others in order to gift to his people. Right? And it's not just anyone. It tells us that it is for the person who pleases God. And here we see the God entranced vision of the teacher. The teacher is now viewing life and work from a theological perspective. This conclusion, 
He says there's nothing better after everything that he's written before. He's now trying to draw our attention. He says there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The point here is not that God is provider, though he is, and that is an important point, and we see this taught to us in various different places in the scriptures. Right, Matthew 5.45 tells us that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In Luke 12, 24, it tells us that God even provides for the sparrows, or even the animals of the earth. God provides. And another passage that speaks to God's gracious, gracious provision is in Acts chapter 14. I can find it for you. I didn't write it down. God, in verse 15, God who made the heaven and the earth. Then verse 17, he says that God gives to you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Everything that we have comes from the hand of God whether the person realizes it or not, whether they're one, a person who pleases God or whether they are a sinner. Every good thing comes from the hand of God. But the main point here is not that God is provider, again, as wonderful and as important as that is, but the center of attention in this section is not necessarily on God, but rather on the person who recognizes that God is the provider and the dispenser of every good thing. You see, what we are giving here in this section is a contrast between two different persons. On the one hand, we have the person who spends his whole life working and missed the blessing of work. And that is the sinner. And the sinner is the one who does not please God. The sinner is the one who does not know God, who does not have a relationship with God. It is the one who does not thank God. And Romans tells us that even a thanklessness towards God is sin. This person essentially the person who does not know the Lord Jesus. God gave, gave unto the world his greatest gift, and that is the gift of his Son who came into the world to spare his people from the judgment and the wrath of God so that anyone who places their faith on Jesus Christ is saved from the judgment of God, is forgiven of their sins, is reconciled with God, is given eternal life and wonderful, bountiful blessings in Christ Jesus. But apart from Christ and apart from faith, it is, the Scripture teaches, impossible to please God. And that no matter how tirelessly this person works or does not work, no matter where they find meaning, the Bible will still describe it as a meaningless life. And so if that, is, if that describes you this morning, turn to the Lord Jesus. Turn to him in faith and repentance. Call to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Call upon him to forgive you of your sins. 
then you will be saved from the judgment of God. You will be saved from the wrath of God. And you'll be given eternal life. You'll be given the Holy Spirit of God. You'll receive, you'll receive the blessings of God. And also, on top of that, He will also save you from living a meaningless life. But apart from knowing God, through faith in Jesus Christ, sinful man will always be pursuing meaning and satisfaction in things that were never intended or designed to provide fulfillment and satisfaction and joy. Right? It's like having a migraine and going to a friend and saying, hey, I have a migraine, I need some relief, can you give me a Band-Aid? Like, that makes no logical sense. A Band-Aid is helpful, but a Band-Aid is not designed to relieve a headache. But this is what the pursuit of the good life is like apart from God. The pursuit of those things that were not ever designed to give anyone lasting fulfillment and joy. So we have a contrast between the person, the sinner, who does not please God, but we also have this other person who is the God-pleaser, the one who knows the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. This person also spends his life working, but he also sees and receives the blessing of work. This person can and does engage in meaningful work. Whether it is a job you enjoy or whether it's a job you might, for the most part, dislike for whatever reason, your work can be meaningful because meaning is not what you make it. But all work, all work, without, well, of course, with the exception of those that do transgress and violate the commands of God, can be and is considered meaningful work when you accept that God essentially is the inventor, the creator of work, and that God created work for the good of man. And there's a blessing that comes from working when one understands that work itself is a blessing. That to be able to produce something with your hands, even if you have to work tirelessly, is something that God gives to man. And the person receives blessing when they remember and work unto the Lord. They can go home with a confident assurance that they have pleased God if they put in the work with their hearts or with their hands or with their minds. Regardless of how terrible their employer is, regardless of how hard the workplace is, the one who pleases God receives the blessing of work when they can go home with a confident assurance that even if their boss is a terrible person to try to please, their ultimate master is the one above. And if we can work to bring pleasure to the sight of God, to the face of God, then we can have a confidence in knowing that we've ended our day with good work. That is not intended to be any kind of job or career advice. Some of you might need to leave your jobs because it is incredibly stressful and a straining on your emotional or physical health. But I'm trying to help you to see that work itself is a blessing, but not intended to be a means of fulfillment. And that it does take effort to try to find some things that you might enjoy in your work. So as we're thinking about the good life, 
the teacher is helping us to see that the good life is not defined by success or wealth or how you look or defined by fulfillment or satisfaction that is found in the world. To the one who pleases God, the good life is not about fleeing or escaping work or the pursuit of freedom in your work. The good life is the life that believes that God is the dispenser of all good gifts. And that person enjoys God's good gifts in a temperate manner. And to enjoy the good gifts that God calls us, that God gives to us, it requires contentment. And that's essentially what the teacher is getting at. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. It is a call to contentment, and contentment takes effort. Enjoy work, enjoy food, enjoy drink. It points to the necessities of life. However, it is when we try to wrestle from them more joy than they were designed to give. It's when we find ourselves misaligned or missing the mark. The basic applicational thrust of this passage, I would say, is to enjoy God's good gifts. Enjoy them. And the only way to do so is with contentment, not trying to find satisfaction in them, but enjoy them in a temperate manner. Enjoy them with contentment. Enjoy them knowing that they come from the good and gracious hand of God. But our problem, even as Christians, our problem is twofold. One problem is that we have a tendency to enjoy the wrong things, don't we? To enjoy the things that God has not given to us. To enjoy those things that are even sinful. We find ourselves with a propensity towards those things. And it's those things that we need to continue to repent of. The other problem we have is that we have a tendency to enjoy the good things, but excessively. To turn them into idols. And it takes effort to avoid both. So that's why contentment takes effort. Are you content? Is contentment something that you work at? Have you been abusing God's good gifts to you and turning them into your own little personal gods? Have you been enjoying those gifts more than the giver of those gifts? What are you doing now? What things might you be giving yourself to that might indicate a dissatisfaction in the great giver of all good gifts? One of the reasons we should be and can be content is because unlike the sinner who spends his years working and collecting and gathering only to end up with nothing, the one who pleases God does work unto prosperity. And certainly we might spend our lives, a third of our lives or more, working tirelessly, endlessly. And we certainly will take nothing with us when we leave this world. But we don't despair, and we shouldn't despair, and neither should we care about being able, whether or not we are able to take things with us, because the Bible actually tells us that we will have everything. Matthew 5, 5, speaking to those who trust in Jesus, says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Romans 8, 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In Ephesians 1, at the end of chapter 1, Paul prays a great prayer for the church. And one of those prayer requests unto God is that God's church would understand and know the inheritance that they have among the saints. For these reasons, we don't make it our aim to collect and gather for the sake of gathering as an end of themselves. Because those who please God with their lives and with their work will ultimately have everything in the end. Now certainly we also work and we lose everything that we will come to possess. But we will possess everything. And while, yes, the person who dies and leaves everything they leave, that they have left behind to those that they have entrusted it to, it's the same for the Christian as well. Because we're also riding on the work of another, and that is the work of Jesus Christ, who came into the world and died on the cross for sinners. We get to ride on his work. We get to take advantage. We get to receive the benefits of his glorious work that we did not have to work for, that we could not ever earn. And the Bible doesn't tell us that that is vanity. The Bible does not tell us that is evil, but actually the Bible teaches us that this is glorious, that this is amazing, that we, through faith in Jesus, can get to receive the benefits of the work of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And it is because of His work and because God is provided and it is because God is the dispenser of every good gift that we should make an effort to enjoy God's good gifts. And enjoyment is work. Some of you might have a harder time than others trying to find enjoyment. Some of you might be working too hard and it might be time to take a break. Some of you perhaps never really go out. Some of you need to call a friend to babysit your children so you and your spouse can enjoy one another and go out on a date. Some of you might need to take a break from watching television so you can find, try to find enjoyment in something else. Some of you might enjoy spending too much time alone it's time to find enjoyment, to pursue enjoyment of the company of others. We have to work at enjoying God's good gifts. And these good gifts make Christians the happiest people on the planet because these good gifts only enhance their joy in Jesus Christ. And I enjoy talking about the Christian life and discipline and self-control and mastery and pursuing the kingdom with tenacity, with a, with a vigor, because ultimately I think that, our, that the scriptures teach us that that is the aim of our life, to pursue the kingdom of Christ. But we are not called to pursue the kingdom of Christ at the expense of joy. And so God, because we spend so many years of our lives, I think it is a great grace of the Lord that he gives us regularly these good gifts 
in order to give us these breaks that we constantly need from our days of work. And so let us enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us. And perhaps if we had made greater efforts at enjoying the good gifts that God has given to us, we might be less sinful and less sin-filled and more joyful and joy-filled. When we make it a priority to enjoy God's good gifts that he gives to us, we might find the pleasures and delights of the world less and less enticing. So all in all, count your blessings. Take notice of all that God has given to you. And thank him because they are also gifts given to you to be enjoyed. We spend so many years of our lives working, and while we should find some enjoyment in our work, God has also given us many other blessings to enjoy as well. So enjoy them to the glory of God. Enjoy them while also remembering that God is the dispenser of every good gift, that God has given to you the greatest gift of his Son, and that more joy is coming your way as you wait to receive the promised inheritance that God has written for us in his word. Amen. Let's pray. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down for the Father of lights. Lord, everything that we have comes from your gracious hand. Every gift that we have is a reminder of just how undeserving we are. But every gift that we have is also a reminder to us of your great mercy and your great love for us. And even your great grace to the world. Lord, help us to count our blessings. Help us to take notice of the things that you have gifted to us. Help us to enjoy them, but not excessively. Help us to not forsake them but help us to receive them, to enjoy them, ultimately, to your glory. So we thank you, God, for being so gracious to us. We thank you, Lord. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.